Ascot, Ascot Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. Good morning, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. Over the next hour, we'll be discussing some great books and our favourite reads. We'll be chatting with the author of a fabulous new novel based on the women who kept the RAF flying in World War II. And we'll be flying high with books on the mighty Spitfire. Good morning. You're listening to River. Ra- you're listening to River Radio with, and it's turning pages here with Heather Adams and Julian Ashton. Thank you very much for listening. Over the next hour, we'll be keeping you up to date with news from the world of books, new releases, bestsellers, and recommendations of some great books to read. So, thank you for joining us, and also thanks to everyone who's contributed to the show today. We've got a fascinating show coming up. Both Julian and I have had the pleasure of a trip down to Biggin Hill to the Spitfire Heritage Hangar recently, which had inspired our theme for this morning. Yes, you've guessed it, it's Spitfires. So I've been talking to author and film producer Paul Olivson Venson Stab, who has um, written a great novel, Atta Girls, based on the female pilots of the ATA, the Air Transport Auxiliary, who kept the RAF flying by delivering planes throughout the war. It's an inspirational story to women and girls everywhere. And we've also been looking at the Spitfire as a plane and the pilots who flew them. And we've got some great book recommendations for you. And once again, we've been scouring the papers to spot interesting book news. Pages on River Radio, the voice of the Thames Valley. And don't forget, we'd love to hear from you. And if you have any favourite authors you want to tell us about, any great book recommendations you have, if you run a local book club or indeed you're a local author, we'd love you to get in touch. And you can contact myself or Heather. I'm on Julian at River.radio and Heather is at Heather at River.radio. And just drop us a line with your book news and we'd be delighted to include some of your thoughts and ideas on future programmes. So let's begin with a roundup of those interesting tidbits that we've spotted in the press about books. And first of all, Julian, I don't know if you spotted this, but did you see that Mary Portis has a new book out? It's called, uh, yes. It's called Rebuild, How to Thrive in the New Kindness Economy, and it's been published by Penguin Books. And it's all about how living, how we live and we buy and we sell is changing. And they're suggesting it's changing for the good. So Rebuild is a vital guide to how we reset our post-pandemic selves and build back better. And it's aimed not just at business people, but all those who engage with businesses, i.e. all of us. So Julian, did you find during the pandemic that your buying habits changed? Um, Well... 
a little bit, yes. I uh, because um, whereas uh, if in I would want a pair of shoes, I'd nip off to Blue Water and go round there. Well, of course you couldn't do that. So of course a lot of things like that um, I bought online. And and being a chap, we tend to be you know we know what we want to buy and we can just order it, so we don't have to browse. But fortunately, I would go out to my local shops to buy food. But that was the only thing that I found disappointing was you couldn't go out and select things um, or, uh, in, from a choice, if yes. you know what I mean. Yeah. Yes. I've got to say that I'm a firm believer in going out to the shops. I hate yes. it online uh, yeah. purchasing. So Mary Porters, of course, is the retail and brand expert who was the government shopping czar and high street guru. You might remember her with that sharp, bright red dyed bob. Yes, she was quite striking. Very, very striking. And she went around retail shops. She went around a load of charity shops talking about how they can up their game Hmm. and be really responsive to to locals and individual conditions. And she's arguing in her book that over the past 30 years, the business of what we buy have been dominated by the biggest and the fastest and the cheapest. Hmm. But those values don't resonate with us anymore. And we've become heartily sick, heartily sick and consumerism and believe that more doesn't equal better so we're now ready to put people and planet before profit so I really hope she's right and I for one think we should definitely all buy our books from our local bookshops yes instead of um any um online retail um mammoth organization yes Yes. (laughs) and in fact actually all our local independents I think that's all that's all good yeah, and I think so, and, and it goes back to food shopping, you know, getting the mind of buying seasonally and locally where you can. Yeah. You know, I think that's really important. Right, uh, well, there's uh, something very interesting uh, I found out. is a handwritten letter by Charles Dickens, um, and it's just been discovered, and it gives us a great deal of insight into how the philanthropic life of the author worked. Oh, great. Um, yeah, it was really, you, you might not know this, but Dickens um, not only wrote about the life of Victorian, the Victorian Paul in his novels, but he was also heavily involved in A Home for, for Fallen Women. Um, <laughs> and the philanthropist, um, Angela Burdett Coutts, who was of the banking dynasty. Oh, Coutts, um, the bankers. What, yeah, absolutely. What we didn't know until this letter, which is dated uh, in 1851, is that Dickens was personally involved in the decisions that made, uh, that affected these women um, and the letter shows him presenting a cheque for 45 pounds which is a considerable sum of money to the matron to help pay the passage to Australia of three women from the home who had shown that they could read and write and perform domestic tasks unfortunately two of the women hadn't passed the threshold for passage oh my goodness yes so presumably they're seeing that as a, a fantastic new way of starting a, a life up again a, a complete new life because ba- back in in, in Victorian England probably that they would be doomed to um, um, well a lo- very low status whereas in Australia they could go and, and, and make something of themselves yes yes absolutely more more opportunities yes so on a 
totally different front. I'm delighted to see that Robert Galbraith, aka J.K. Rowling, of course, oh, yes. has a new Cormoran Strike book out. Now, I am a huge fan of Cormoran Strike. And if you haven't read the books, you might have seen it on the television. Um, uh, no, I haven't. Oh, right. Is oh, it on telly? It's, it's on telly. And they're great. Oh. But the books are brilliant. Right, and yeah. the next one, the latest one, is called Trouble Blood. It's published by Sphere and is in bookshops now. And I've got to say it's fantastic. Fantastic. It is a bit of a huge book. It's about a thousand pages long. So Crikey, that it, is big. Oh, but it's perfect. <laughs> it's perfect for a holiday. And if you yeah. are in the holiday and you've gone somewhere and the weather's not quite as you wanted it to be, then this is the book to take with you because and you can just sit and read all day fantastic. long. It's brilliant. Fantastic. And then when you finish with it, at that size, it'll be a great doorstop. <laughs> no, you want to keep it. Give it to your friends. <laughs> so this is going to be the fifth in the detective series, which follows Cormoran Strike and his partner, Robin. And this time they're investigating a case from 40 years ago about a serial killer. So if you love your crime books, then definitely recommend Troubled Blood by Robert Galbraith. Sounds fantastic. Um, and I saw a great picture in The uh, the Guardian about the annual celebration uh, of the birthday uh, of the author Ernest Hemingway in Florida. Oh, and, I read uh, that story too. Yeah. It was brilliant. And, and, they, and they, have a, they have a lookalike competition. So it's extraordinary. You see all these men um, roaming the streets in their white T-shirts, a red beret, a red bandana, and their white beards during the competition. And it really does make you smile to see it. Um, <laughs> And of course, he was a a literary giant. I mean, he was also a great uh, adventurer in a way, a great uh, fisherman as well. Um, uh, And I'm not sure how popular he is today, um, but there's also a a six-part BBC um, television programme on at the moment, which is really fantastic. I'm just about to start to watch it. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, and and it really, and it's been um, uh, highly praised by the critics. Um, But there are some, some statistics or, or things about Hemingway, which he he has survived two plane crashes in two days. He managed to shoot himself in both legs whilst um, wrestling with a shark. As you do. He had, yeah, <laughs> he had at least nine major concussions. Um, he had four wives. He also had brain damage, but that didn't stop him winning the Pulitzer Prize and the Nobel Prize. Uh, as I mentioned, he, he fished, but he also hunted, wrote plays and books and articles and all sorts of stories and was... Uh, ever in pursuit of the truest sentence. Now, his most popular books, Farewell to Arms, For Whom the Bell Tolls, um, The Old Man of the Sea, were all Pulitzer Prize winners. And in fact, actually, um, Farewell to Arms is um, one of the films on BBC iPlayer at the moment. But the other, yeah, but the other thing that's really, really important is that he was also a great drinker. So there are many, many bars around the world which claim that this is where Hemingway drank. And it's great fun, particularly in Florida. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I did see that story. And there it seems to be just such a, a thing about Hemingway at the moment. Yes. Absolutely. Um, yeah, really. And maybe that's his renaissance. I mean, because I think, I don't think, um, I think people just sort of think of the novels, but he was quite an extraordinary character. I mean, he was really a sort of an, he wasn't an, uh, he was an adventurer. Yes, absolutely. I think that's exactly what he was, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And the last bit of news, I don't know if you haven't seen the news coverage, where have you been? But Sarah Ferguson, Aka Fergie, or the oh, yes. Duchess <clears throat> of York, mm-hmm. uh, has written a Mills and Boone's book based on her ancestors. 
Oh dear. So it's coming for a bit of flack, but I don't I think I think we just need to read it for ourselves. It's called Heart for a Compass and it's her first novel for right adults, but she's actually written seventy books in total. Oh gosh. So she does these budgie the helicopter books for children. Ah, yes, yes. Though I must admit, um, um, I I was always a bit concerned about that because when I was a boy, um, I thoroughly enjoyed um, a novel which was Henry the Helicopter, which was a talking helicopter, Ah. and he was a police helicopter. And I just wondered whether there was a bit of you-know-what about that. Ah, right. Mm, Well, she uh, she took inspiration for Heart for a Compass from her family. Um, So it's supposed to be her great-great-aunt. Right. Um, well, there is a strong link, of course, with Bills and Boons and the Royal House because oh, yes. um, Diana, Princess of Wales, um, grandmother, Barbara Cartland, was, of course, one of the great Bills and Boons writers. Of course. Yes. Absolutely. We, brilliant link, Julian. Well yeah. done. <laughs> hey. <laughs> this is River Radio and you're listening to Turning Pages with Heather and Julian. Thank you so much for listening. So coming up in the show, we'll be discussing those authors who've written about Spitfires. And I'll be talking to Paul Olivson Stab, film producer and author whose book, Girls has just been published. Now, his book is all about a small group of young women of the Air Transport Auxiliary who take to the skies to do their bit in World War II. And of course, they were based in White Waltham, just outside Maidenhead. But before we do that, I asked um, our River Radio resident poet, Mike Burton, to um, if he had any poems about Spitfires. And he's just like a poet machine. Absolutely incredible. <laughs> 15 minutes oh. later. <laughs> Poetry on demand. Absolutely. <laughs> he wrote this poem. I've got to say it's lovely. So here it is now. Let's listen. Let's listen to it. You need to get it in the right position, right, to start off with. The Display Pilot. never thought that one day, not in a million years, sitting in the cockpit of a Spitfire, waiting for the all clear, as a boy he'd sat on his garden wall and watched them fly overhead. He had a wooden model, pretended then instead. But now as he listened to ground control, tension in the air, the Merlin engine growling, pretending he didn't care. He wondered about his father when he flew in the war. He took a moment to contemplate about what it was for. Many had died so he could live. It felt a bit like fate to be flying to the air show on this anniversary date. Proudness filled his every thought, but not one to make a fuss. He recalled what Churchill said back then what the few did for us. Now they were ready and time to go, this three ship from the war, the Battle of Britain Memorial flight, let the engines roar. I must admit, Julian, when we were at Biggin Hill, it was really interesting that when you're waiting and listening with the, uh, the noise of that Spitfire, it really did make you feel about those boys that went out and flew. 
Absolutely, really, uh, truly. And you know, when the when, when those Merlin engines fired up, uh, and you could hear the throbbing of those engines, and then and then see the aircraft slowly going off down um, the runway, of course, because this is a different times, and it was a sort of um, uh, a heritage flight. But you think back that there would be a whole squadron of them roaring down a grass runway at the same time at a distance, and these were men. I mean, they, they were they were they were actually always you want to say children you know you know i think if you were 23 year old yes. you know it was extraordinary you know um having trained those young men and then to see them off but but it was always um, even when mike went off in his uh on his flight i mean it was fantastic to see that with that roar as it yes. was shot off um down the runway and off it went uh, it was fantastic yeah it was it was br- it was brilliant wasn't it and it was, um, it was superb i would recommend it to anybody you can do it um and of course when we got the uh the news somebody texted us or sort of emailed us to say that um there's a new book out that's based on the Atta girls I yes that's right yes this <coughs> actually interviewing the uh, the author because the air traffic auxiliary team were based in white waltham which was um, just down the road uh in the thames valley and um they kept our pilots flying really delivering all the planes from where they were being uh where they were being built or where they'd been inadvertently landed and then they would be transferred to the appropriate airfields so they were an amazing team absolutely uh, incredible team and you know these uh, and, and they were taking aircraft which probably were not armed at all and they couldn't go into combat yes. um and they would have to deliver these airplanes and as we'll hear from a reading you know how perilous that could be you know and and, and also we, we when we went to the launch we to find out that they literally would arrive and you know they'd not flown that type of aircraft so they would be given an instruction book and off they went. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> and they could be flying sort of eight different types yeah, of planes yeah. in, a day, I mean, it could, in a day. Yeah, exactly. It could be a Spitfire. And then you, you arrive at that, um, that air station, you've delivered that, and then you have to pick up a Lancaster bomber. Yeah. Um, and off you go. And these, you know, they're incredible women. Absolutely um, incredible. Tr- truly incredible. Yeah. And so um, we've got a reading of uh, a bit of the book. Um, and then we're, we're talking to, uh, to the author. So let's do that now. Great. Atta Girls, Chapter 26 by Paul Olufsen Stab. As her Spitfire soared into the air, Molly had not felt quite so much enthusiasm for several months. The views over the English Channel were eerily peaceful, albeit through a scattering of low grey cloud which cloaked the airfield as she circled overhead. Molly pulled a map out of her boot and spread it on her knees, looking for the railway lines below. Rightio, step one. Let's find some landmarks. No sooner than Molly had levelled out at her desired altitude, she noticed in her rearview mirror a speck approaching fast from across the channel, and it seemed to be getting bigger. Molly flashed back to her narrow escape from the rogue Luftwaffe Messerschmitt only a few months before and how narrowly she had come close to being shot down. Oh, please, no, not again, she said. I have nothing to fight you off with. As the object approached, Molly nervously banked left, slightly lowered her altitude, and looked back and up to see what it was. God, you're fast, she said. Bloody hell, it's a buzz bomb. The dark black silhouette of the V-1 flying bomb, or doodlebug as they were commonly known, sped towards her on its murderous journey. Where are you going? 
It's either the docks or central London, she said. Well, wherever it is, we shall see about that. Molly knew that she had only a few seconds to react, as the speed of the V1 flying bomb was much faster than her Spitfire, and she quickly made a decision to try and wingtip it off course. Molly increased her speed and came up at approximately the same altitude as the V1, which was rapidly approaching from behind, so that it would pass on her right side. The V1's engine started pop-popping, and it miraculously and fortunately slowed, indicating that it would soon fall to the ground. Molly quickly realised it was heading for the London docks. Using all her skill, Molly positioned herself so that the V1 would come slightly above and close to her right wing, and, as the terrifying black mass flew alongside, she manoeuvred her wingtip to within inches of the buzz bomb's left wing. In what seemed like a split-second opportunity, Molly prayed that she was not making the biggest mistake of her life. The dire consequences of her failing in her mission flashed like a bolt from the skies. Molly tipped her wing so that the two aircraft connected. The noise and shudder were a lot more than Molly expected, and she stopped breathing for a few moments, uneasy in the thought that she was perhaps doing more harm than good. But it seemed to work as the V-1 suddenly veered off course and into a rapid descent towards the cold, grey-blue water of the River Medway estuary. A trail of black smoke emerged from the descending V-1 and Molly banked around to see it crash in the water. I had a lovely time chatting with Paul on uh, about his book and this is our conversation. Paul, thank you very much indeed for joining me this morning. Tell me a little bit about your book. Well, As a Girls is the name of the book. Um, it's being published on the 1st of August, which is all very exciting. And it's about the, it's based on a true story of 22-year-old Molly Rose, who was a pilot at the Air Transport Auxiliary, or the ATA, as they were known, during World War II. It's about a, a group of young women who took to the skies to do their bit, basically. And, and the story highlights how their bravery and determination played a vital part in, in changing the course of history, in fact. It's a history that uh, is not as well known as actually it should be. So how did you get interested in the, the air transport auxiliary in the first place? Well, I first, I first heard about the organisation after a party in London, and as one does. And uh, I heard about the group of young women. There were men as well, of course, in the ATA, but the, the story I was told was about a group of young women that, that did all the ferrying work and, and who risked their lives against uh, incredible odds and, and, and amongst huge challenges both on the ground and in the air and my enthusiasm was was peaked when I met Graham Rose at the ATA Museum actually in Maidenhead ah, okay. Graham is the son of Molly Rose who is the heroine aviatrix of this story and when Graham told me the story the hairs on my arms were standing up and I thought this is just incredible because it was one of those stories that I thought well had had it not been Graham, it's difficult to believe that someone could go through so much and still carry on. And I, th I thought, wow, what's an inspiration to women and girls everywhere to, to firstly, to embrace the opportunities as Molly did, and then to come through the, the things that happened to her, which, which are really, truly <laughs> unbelievable, and the, th the situations that she found herself in. And I thought, well, this would be my next film. So that, that was my inspiration, actually, at the museum, sitting there with Graham and, 
yes. listening to his story, the story of his mother, which he tells so eloquently. And and the other lovely thing, Graham, as as with Molly, they were both very modest, and their modesty was also part of the charm, you know, of hearing the story. So that oh. was my inspiration. So it's it's a novel, but it's based on a on a true story. Why did you decide to fictionalise the? Well, I thought that rather than write a factual book, which would almost be you know a historical record of the ATA, which which has kind of been, I, I did some a lot of research in the RAF Club Library in London, and there were there were many books about the the factual story of the ATA, but it was Molly's particular story that I wanted to focus on, and being such an avid novel fan and particularly 20th century history novel fan i thought well why not romanticize this in a way and novelize and bring out the characters my my partner andy who's an xraf squadron leader and i wrote a screenplay first and foremost so our plan was to make a film and yeah. still is and we are going to make a film so we wrote the screenplay first so of course that was a that was the origin but then i thought well we actually were in production discussions with some quite big companies actually just before covid and then of course everything stopped and i thought well i'm not going to sit around doing nothing so i adapted the screenplay as a novel I and mean, it's now you know three times bigger and with a lot more character development a lot more research there was a huge amount of research because as you quite rightly say it's it's, it's a historical story that's been novelized so but the facts the facts have to be correct yes and so the research was just endless it was two two years of research yeah. before novelizing and the short answer to your question is it was originally a, f- a film concept <laughs> So now you've written the book, will you go back to the original screen and change that slightly? I have to, and that's my next step. Once the book's published, then I need to sit down with the screenplay and basically transfer all of the new material back into the screenplay and then go back into film mode of, of finding the, the partners that we need to, to make yeah. the film. And it will be, hopefully, will be a big budget film. Right. It would have to be because of the the aircraft and the scenes well it definitely <laughs> definitely deserves to be a, a big film so when i was going around the heritage center and the and the fabulous um, museum when grandma flew spitfires <laughs> yeah. i was i was looking at the log books that the ladies would write and i was surprised yes. not only at the range of planes that they flew but that each one was different and they'd sit in the cockpit and just get a little book out to say oh how do you work this one right you've got half an hour looking at the instructions which was just amazing so what was it that surprised you during all this research what was it so that gave you the biggest surprise about these women and well that that was one of them one of them was that they they would literally jump into an aircraft having no experience of that aircraft sometimes never having flown that particular type before and they had a little blue book called the ferry pilot's notes list all the kind of procedures and even the idiosyncrasies of some of these these planes but and, but often they said when you if you've flown one plane you've flown them all which i don't actually kind of, can't quite see that but but uh, they they really did jump into and the some of them were big planes you know like lancaster wellington bombers and you know they're 
pretty much big handfuls. These yeah, as well as the Spitfires, of course. Yeah, the absolute, they're the pinnacle of their their careers. The Spitfires, the planes that they all loved and, and adored, actually, and often referred to as a woman's aircraft because they said they were so perfectly beautiful to handle and the slightest touch that one pilot actually said you didn't even have to move the the, the, the steering mechanism you just had to think i want to go to the port side and off, off it would go you know it was that sensitive which is incredible but the other thing is um, is that they flew with no navigation equipment they flew with no radios and they flew with no weapon so they were up against incredible challenges to get from A to B, which they did all day, every day. You know, they had to follow the roads and the railway lines and and often maps were difficult to come by at that time because they were all used for what was considered more important purposes. Incredible. And, you know, they had to rip maps out of library books. And <laughs> it's just so funny. And radio, there was radio silence, so they had no radio communication. Powerless to defend, defend themselves in the event of marauding German fighters, which actually happened on several occasions. They were fired at by our own anti-aircraft gunners on the ground. You know, there were, it, was, it was incredible. Yeah. That was the inspiration. Is this really possible? You know, can one be through? It would never happen today. Can you imagine a pilot being yeah. given an aircraft that just... That they've never flown. <laughs> so I suppose of all the famous people, Amy Johnson sort of stands yeah. out as our big aviatrix. That, but she died during an ATA transport. She did, actually. There's often been speculation about how that happened and why and what happened. And, and you know, Amy wasn't actually one of the, the famous first eight, which was the first eight women of the... ATA, uh, which is actually my next book, by the way. Um, uh-huh. But the Amy was was just after the first eight, and there was some controversy actually about how she died because she did go down in the Thames. From from memory, there were some rumours that the rescue boat had actually collided with either her or the aircraft. I think someone else got drowned when they went to jumped um. into to to rescue her. There were there was a rumour that she had someone else with her in the cockpit. There were all sorts of conspiracy theories so but it's a very interesting story but she certainly was a character she really was as were many of the other girls they were such characters and that was the other beauty of the story they were often you know a lot of them came from what one would call i suppose the you know the, the the upper echelons of society because they had access to planes and before the war so they were a fairly interesting group in the beginning but then of course as the ata grew there were pilots coming in from all over the world and 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 all kinds of backgrounds and it became such a an incredible mix there was no real kind of class distinction within the unit they they bonded together and protected each other and looked after each other. They, and they had, I mean, that was a beautiful thing about the, the, the way they cared about each other. It didn't matter where they were from or what background they had. They, they very much operated mm-hmm. as a team, as a unit. And that was lovely, sharing information about the planes and the yeah. idiosyncrasies of the planes and looking out for each other. The, the ATA story is a truly wonderful yeah, it's, it's absolutely it's brilliant to base it on such an important aspect of the war that is quite forgotten. But I did want to mention that the uh, women also got the same pay as the men, which was absolutely brilliant in those days. It was, actually. And, and they were the first, as far as I'm aware, they were the first organisation 
in England to yeah. achieve that equal pay comparison, which was Fabulous. wonderful. It was, uh, and that was through Pauline Gower, who who kind of co-founded the ATA with Gerard Delanger. And Gerard Delanger's daughter, Minnie Churchill, wrote the forward, uh, the forward to my book. But Pauline Gower was just an absolute, she just didn't give up. You know, she lobbied for equal pay from the outset and eventually got it you know she yeah. was she lobbied for women to fly bigger and faster aircraft and eventually it happened you know she was just she didn't give up yeah. and that was another great inspirational story within the story you know another woman that just would not take no for an answer she was just willing to go for it and, and didn't stop until she achieved it well that's that's brilliant i think the fabulous. the ata and your novel is a is a real uh, inspiration and i think we should all read it so thank you very much indeed paul thank you thank you so much and I've got to say, can I recommend to everybody a trip to the Heritage Centre in Maidenhead Town Centre? It's got a main exhibition point for the ATA and it's called When Grandma Flew Spitfires. And it's got all the log books and um, you can see what they, what they wore and what they had to fly. And also it's got a flight simulator of a Spitfire. So you can actually, Fantastic. yeah, so you can actually go in a Spitfire and there's somebody there obviously telling you what you've got to do. And then wow. you can, uh, you can have a, have a go, sort of spend half Ooh. an hour. It's, re- it's really brilliant. It's not that expensive. And uh, Richard Pode, who's the gentleman that runs the Heritage Centre in Maidenhead, actually is sort of like a, a world-renowned authority on, Ooh, uh, right. on the ATA. And he actually also wrote an introduction to Attergirls. So, ah, super. Yeah, so it's all linked. So, of course, uh, Paul's book and our visit to the Maidenhead Heritage Centre and our visit to Biggin Hill Aerodrome mm-hmm. has inspired this week's programme. And we've decided to take a look at books about the Spitfire, that iconic flying machine um, that flew in, uh, in the war. So let's start with a reading from the first book that I've chosen. And it's, um, it's absolutely lovely. Spitfire Pilot by Flight Lieutenant D.M. Cook, DFC. August, September 1940. On Friday the 27th, another big raid tried to get through to Bristol and we took off to intercept. We spotted a squadron of ME-110 circling over Swanage at 25,000 feet, waiting to protect their bombers on their return. We immediately turned towards the enemy fighters and started to climb above them. They had formed one of their defensive circles, going round and round on each other's tails. Altogether, quite a tough nut to crack. Incidentally, this was the first time in this war that we had met the enemy on equal terms. Generally, we were outnumbered by anything from 3 to 1 up to 10 to 1. But on this glorious occasion, there were 15 of them to 12 of us, and we made the most of it. We were very close to them now, and we started to dive. I think that these moments just before the clash are the most gloriously exciting moments of life. You sit there behind a great engine that seems as vibrant and alive as you are yourself. Your thumb waits expectantly on the trigger. 
and your eyes watch the gun sights through which in a few seconds an enemy will be flying in a veritable hail of fire. And all around you, in front and behind, there are your friends too, all eager and excited, all thundering down together into the attack. The memory of such moments is burnt into my mind forever. I was flying behind Mick and he turned slightly left to attack an ME-110 which was coming towards him. But the German was as determined as Mick and refused to give way or alter course to avoid this head-on attack. Their aggregate speed of closing was at least 600 miles per hour and an instant later they collided. There was a terrific explosion and a sheet of flame and black smoke seemed to hang in the air like a great ball of fire. Many little shattered fragments fluttered down, and that was all. Poor old Mick. The whole enemy circle had been broken up by attack, and various Messerschmitts were streaming out to sea with our people chasing after them. All this happened in an instant, and I turned in order to get on the tail of a Hun. I saw an ME-110 about half a mile ahead, and went after him on full throttle. He was also going flat out and diving to get extra speed, but my beloved Spitfire rose nobly to the occasion and worked up to over 400 miles an hour, and I caught him fairly easily, though we were 20 miles out to sea by this time. Apart from Mick's death, the whole flight had been a great success. Six Huns were destroyed, and one or two more probables. I remember walking into the mess for lunch and sitting down and suddenly recollecting that at breakfast, only a few hours before, I had sat next to Mick at this very table and we had chatted together. That was the one thing I could never get accustomed to. Seeing one's friends gay and full of life as they always were, and then a few hours later, seeing the Batman start packing their kit, their shaving brush still damp from being used that morning, while the owner was lying dead in a shattered aeroplane somewhere in England. Isn't that poignant? Um, yeah, I just, uh, what's really interesting about this book, so the book is called Spitfire Pilot by Flight Lieutenant D.M. Crook, D.F.C., um, and it was written in 1950 in the in the heat of the battle. So when the RAF was standing alone against the might of Hitler's Third Reich, it really was just a thin line of blues mm. uh, boys up in the air. He was writing it in his downtime. So as he was sort of waiting to be called out or when the weather was bad, he was writing this, um, his book. So it really feels um, sort of pertinent. So he was sort of, they were, the, they were his thoughts of that at that moment. And uh, so it's a tremendous personal account of uh, one of the most fiercest and also idealised air conflicts. I mean, we, we do remember people die all the time. It's very easy to see the glory of it instead of, instead of the horrors. So the Battle of Britain, seen through the eyes of this pilot of the famous 609 Squadron, and they shot down over 100 planes in that epic uh, conquest. Um, so David Moorcrock, he died in 1944, and he was a British fighter pilot and flying ace, and he won the Distinguished Flying Cross for his actions. Mm. And um, his death was whilst he was doing a high-level photographic sortie, and he was flying a Spitfire, and he was seen to dive into the sea. 
Oh, no. Uh, just before mm. Christmas, and he was oh. officially listed. And he was just 30 years old. And um, he'd married five years beforehand. And uh, he managed just one day on his honeymoon before they oh. called him back called him up. Um, mm. to, to fly. Um, and they had a son who was four years old when he died. So he is commemorated on the Runnymede Memorial um, and is also on the Battle of Britain Monument in London. And a plane flown by him is actually on display at the Imperial War Museum in London. Oh, fantastic. So if you're interested in exploring him as a person, um, obviously read the book. But also you can go out and about either in London or in Runnymede to, uh, to see his memorials. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, that is a nice little uh, introduction on, um, because I want to chat a, a little bit about um, the the um, genesis, the history of the uh, Supermarine Spitfire. Oh, yeah. Because there are a tremendous number of books written about the Spitfire. It's almost impossible, really, to choose which one to talk about. So I thought I'd give a little bit of a potted history of the machine and mention some titles at the end for our listeners to to select oh, if they want to yeah, read some more. Good idea. Um, yeah. And the, the Spitfire was and is, for the remaining 60 examples, that are still in existence and a really amazing machine, not only for its looks, but also for its abilities. Uh, it was designed by RJ Mitchell, who was the chief designer at Supermarine Aviation Works. Uh, and it was uh, designed as a short range, high performance interceptor aircraft. And what makes the Spitfire one of the most recognizable of aircraft are the elliptical wings, um, the inspiration of which, according to um, a scene uh, of the film, First of the Few, was when Mitchell was observing birds in flight. Right. Um, and at the time, Mitchell was designing seaplanes for Supermarine for them to compete in, uh, in the coveted Schneider Trophy. <clears throat> now, interestingly, the genesis of the Spitfire, as we know, it started in 1931. You know, sometimes I think people think that the Spitfire was, was a product of the war, but it was actually started in 1931 when the Air Ministry called for a modern fighter capable of flying at 250 miles an hour. Mitchell designed um, the Supermarine Type 224 to fill that role, which was an open um, cockpit aircraft, yeah. which had gull wings. So very much like the Schneider Trophy aircraft he was designing, yeah. had a fixed undercarriage. There were seven designs that were submitted to the Air Ministry, but the one that was chosen was in fact the Gloucester Gladiator and not Mitchell's design. Mitchell was disappointed with the Type 224, um, so he embarked on what he called uh, a cleaned up version, uh, which he based on the Schneider Trophy seaplane, um, which was his starting point. And this led to the Type 300, which sported a retractable undercarriage and introduced uh, and had a reduced wingspan. But it, but that too was also rejected by the Air Ministry. You might be getting into a bit too much detail here for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, under, well, well, keep up with it, keep up with it. Anyway, undeterred, he made some changes, further changes, which included oxygen um, breathing equipment, smaller and thinner wings, and of course, a newly developed Merlin engine. Um, and that was a great success because in 1934, the Air Ministry issued a contract to produce the Type 300 and also threw in £10,000 um, for the prototype to be made. And in 1936, the prototype Type was uh, taken, took off from Eastleigh Airport. Yeah. Um, and that was four months after the maiden flight of the hurricane. Wow. Now, yeah. And the production, um, the Spitfire came off um, the assembly line in 1938, which is about two years after the initial order. Um, but the 
final cost of the Spitfire, I mean, these are quite staggering for the day, for the 310 Spitfires that were ordered, the, the amount came to just short of £1.9 million. Each aircraft cost £9,500. Most expensive part was the um, the hand-fabricated and finished fuselage, which was 2500 The The engine, the Merlin engine, was £2,000. The wings were £1,800 pounds a pair the undercarriage and guns were 800 pounds a piece and the propeller 350 quid well i do know i do know that um adolf galland i think that's how you pronounce it who was a famous um pilot of the luftwaffe was asked by Goering what he was required uh, to protect the bombers and he yeah. famously replied give me a squadron of spitfires it's exactly which was rather put a put in, in a bit of a grump i think <laughs> well i think it would have done wouldn't it <laughs> exactly but the one thing which i think was really interesting when i was reading up about it uh, when when rj mitchell was told um or heard that the authorities had come up with the name spitfire he said just the sort of bloody silly name they would think of. <laughs> it's a great name, actually. <laughs> I know, fantastic. But I suppose the designers, you see, I suppose he's designed, he probably had some other idea in his mind. Yes, yes. So what are the books you're going to recommend them well, to the, read? There are three that I've, uh, I'm yeah. going to recommend. One's is Spitfire Kids, and yeah. that's a generation who built, supported, and flew Britain's most beloved fighters, and that's published by Headline. Then there's Spitfire, The History of a Legend by Mike Lapine, Sona Books. Oh, yes. And then third, which I think is really going to be a fun one, is the Spitfire Manual 1940 by Dilip Sarkar, published by Amberley Publishing. And that's a bit of a do-it-yourself book, you know, jump in a, jump in a Spitfire and off you go. Oh, brilliant. In fact, yeah. wasn't, wasn't I reading in The Sun? That's obviously that uh, high-level uh, newspaper that I read every now and again, uh, that actually somebody built a Spitfire in his garden shed. He did, yes. So <laughs> he, I mean, fantastic. So yeah, he obviously I mean, really, had that, I mean, um, the, uh, that book to, uh, to yeah. inspire him. Yeah, and didn't he have to take some walls down or something to, to fit the wings in, I <laughs> well, think? probably, as it was uh, the correct, it was full-size model. <laughs> so the, the next book I'm going to recommend is, is one called Spitfire uh, by John right. Nicholl which is uh, published by Simon & Shuston. It's now out in paperback. And it, when it was published in hardback, it won the Sunday Times non-fiction bestseller of the year and the WH Smith non-fiction book of the year. So it's mm-hmm. really up there. And you might remember John Nicholl. He was the guy that was actually uh, shot down in the Gulf, uh, the Gulf oh, War, yes. and then was paraded. Um, he was captured and tortured and paraded on television. And uh, yes, the images right, yes. are very sort of, that's sort of the enduring image of, of, of mm. the Gulf War, really. So he um, is now in demand, not only as a best-selling author and journalist, but he also does these motivational lectures and after-dinner speeches. He's an amazing gentleman. And this is his portrait of the Spitfire. So real sort of edge-of-the-seat stories and heart-stopping first-hand accounts of battling pilots forced to bail out over occupied territory and of the sacrifice of wartime love mm. and of aristocratic female flyers and the mechanics who uh, who braved the Nazi onslaught to keep the aircraft in battle, battle-ready condition. It's a really fantastic group of stories. Um, right. So that's absolutely a, a really lovely book. Uh, and, it's I got, recommend. and it's got a super jacket as well, hasn't it? It has got a super jacket. Yeah, really good jacket, I think. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, we've got the hardback version. It looks great. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, uh, uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Carry on, Julian. Is it me, is it me Poem? <laughs> it is you, yes. 
Your poem. <laughs> it's, now, I've just, uh, I've, I'm going to uh, read uh, a poem. It's very short. It's called For Johnny, and it's written by um, John Putney. But I just want to give a, a little bit of uh, um, background because I've, I've got a link to John Putney. Oh, yeah. You know, where, where they say you're uh, only X number of handshakes away from somebody Six. famous. Well, actually, my good friend who lives around the corner, um, Joy Pennells, is a school teacher, uh, which is retired now. Yeah. But she knew the Putney uh, family. Um, the author and his wife, Crystal, because she taught um, his son, or their son, should I say. And he lived just down the road in in Chipstead. Great. Oh, that's fantastic. So let's listen to the poem now. For Johnny by John Slay Putney. Do not despair for Johnny head in air. He sleeps as sound as Johnny underground. Fetch out no shroud for Johnny in the cloud and keep your tears for him in after years. Better by far for Johnny the bright star to keep your head and see his children fed. Now that's poignant. It is, absolutely. Um, really, I mean, that captures everything. Um, and I've got one one other book, which is um, Reach for the Sky, yeah. um, which was written by Paul Brickhill, published by William Collins in 1954. Quite a famous book, because it's actually the biography of Douglas Bader, who's oh, one of the most excellent. extraordinary pilots yes. yeah, of, 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 of the Second World War. And despite losing both legs in a flying accident, he overcame his disabilities, and through sheer drive, courage and determination, he persuaded the RAF to allow him to return to active service. Um, Douglas was born in 1910, and even from an early age, he displayed something of a maverick streak. Um, ex- at school, he was extremely competitive at sport, particularly in rugby. Very combative um, nature. And he, he used to rather relish getting into physical battles with bigger and older schoolboys, <laughs> which he, he thought there was a great fun. <laughs> now, he joined the RAF in 1928 as a cadet officer at Cranwell, then received his commission in 1930 as a pilot officer and was based at number 23 Squadron in Kenley. Now, it was at this time that... Um, but Abada became something of a daredevil, flying dangerous stunts, which incidentally were forbidden by the squadron commander. But it was at one such dare, which is the local connection here, at Reading um, Aero Club, that Bada attempted an aerobatic manoeuvre in the Bulldog uh, Mark II because he was dared to do it. Anyway, as he was coming in, the wingtip of the plane touched the ground and crashed. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, it was awful. Uh, Bada was rushed to the Royal, Royal Berkshire Hospital, but his injuries were too great and um, they had to uh, amputate both his legs. Um, but so in he, 19... Pardon? His injury was because he was playing about. Yes, and he was forbidden. I mean, he, he, he was forbidden because they'd lost so many pilots just playing these stunts. But there were a couple of guys who were civilians and said, because he was quite well known, they sort of egged him on and he thought, right, okay. Whereas his chum, who was another, I said, no, you can't do it, you can't yes. do it. But no, off he went and he came and it was this really dangerous stunt. Oh, came so terrible. low. terrible. Yeah, absolutely, in the cost of his legs. Um, but uh, anyway, 1932, with his determination, I mean, he 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 learned to drive a specially modified car, played golf, and then um, learned to dance, which was useful when he courted his future wife, Thelma. But having accomplished all of these, he was really determined to get back into the RAF, and he was accepted back. And eight years after his uh, flying accident, he was flying solo again. Um, and it was in 1940 he was stationed to RAF Duxford, where he entered the combat duties. He was in the Battle of France. Battle of Dunkirk, Operation Dynamo, and also the Battle of Britain. 
That's amazing in, that they let pardon? him. That's amazing they let him yeah. fly. Um, I know. So I, disabled. I, I think he had a bit of luck because uh, he, when he was applying, they sort of said, oh, yes, you can come in, but it's going to be a desk job, yeah. which, of course, he didn't want. But there was one senior officer, and I can't remember his name now, who actually took a gamble and he got, got him clearance to fly. But, of course, actually in terms of his disability, um, in fact, um, with his tin legs, that's what saved his life when he was shot down because oh. his legs were trapped under ah. the pedal system um, of the aircraft. And if they were real legs, he would have gone down with his aeroplane. But he managed to just basically Brilliant. unhook his legs, open the cockpit yeah. lid and jump out or throw himself yeah. out and, and go in the parachute. And oh, he was, when he was caught, uh, he was hospitalised in San Omer, but <laughs> typical Bada did a boy's own um, style caper, escaped by tying some bed sheets, and, and off he went. <laughs> um, but he was he was he was he was caught. Um, in fact, betrayed. He was staying in a in a shed of a, a, a nice French couple, and he was carted off to to Colditz, where he attempted to escape again. Um, failed and was returned, and then he he sat out the war um, there. But the I think what really is quite important um, that in his war tally, uh, he had 22 aerial victories, four shared victories, one probable, one shared probable and 11 enemy aircraft damaged. And his decorations included the DSO and bar, the DFCM bar. And then in 1976, he was uh, knighted for services um, to disabled people. Brilliant. That's um, fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And I've got to say, actually, re- you reminded me that the ATA wasn't just women that flew. Um, a lot of uh, men um, flew as well. That's and right. They mm. were often disabled and therefore the RAF wouldn't yeah. allow them to fly in the uh, in the battle zones. But they were cleared to uh, to distribute the planes around the yeah. country. Yeah. So, so, yes, in fact, because I think that's when, what the author was saying, because um, um, when... Uh, um, Oh, was it was it Betty? I've forgotten the name. Bless her. Okay. Well, not Betty, was it? Yeah. And she, when she said to her son, "Don't forget the men," because um, yes. she was saying that you know we are the Atter girls, but don't forget the men because yeah. you know they also played a part. Yeah. So I think you're absolutely right now. Yeah. Right. Uh, you're listening to River Radio. If you've forgotten the voice of the Thames Valley, and don't forget, we'd love to hear from you. Um, so if you've got a favourite author, or uh, you want to tell us about one of your great books uh, that you've been reading, or you are running a local book club, or indeed you are an author yourself, please do get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. You can uh, drop an email to Heather at Heather. Uh, at river.radio or me julian at river.radio with any of your ideas thoughts and recommendations and we'll be happy to put them on air uh, in another program fantastic yes so finally we're in the last few minutes so we just thought we'd give you a taste of what's hitting the top of the book charts this week so really interesting we've had matt haig who's had the midnight library for the last six months now i think um in the in the top 10 and he's now got a second book which is called the comfort book which is actually a general hardback so non-fiction this time and it's stories of meditations to offer comfort when times are tough and also a really great book that's um headlining at the henley literary festival in october is the vaxxers by sarah gilbert and Catherine green that's made an appearance in the top 10 as well all about um the vaccination for covid 
Very topical. Yeah. Uh, in the general paperbacks, um, More Than a Woman by Katie Moran. Um, this is a guide to growing older and a celebration of middle-aged women. And there's also Agent Sonia by Ben McIntyre. This is a true story of a mother of three in the Cotswold who is a Soviet spy. Uh, and actually, I heard that on um, Radio 4. So if anybody ever listens to Radio 4 when they're not listening to River Radio, then um, you can pick that up on Listen Again, I think. Oh, right. Good. Um, So in Fiction Hardback, we've got a straight into the number one spot is She Who Became the Sun by Shelley Parker Chan. And this is a great book. It's a glorious reimagining of the rise to power of the Ming Dynasty's founding emperor. Wow. Um, And also Mark Billingham, who is one of my favourite crime writers, he's got a new book out uh, called Rabbit Hole, and that's gone straight into the top ten. And it's it's a great premise. It's about a police officer who's probing a murder in a psychiatric ward, and she is also one of the patients. So that's that's fantastic. Very very interesting. Well, in the paperback um, fiction league, we've got Richard Osman with the Thursday Murder Club. Um, This is still selling um, mad and mad numbers, and uh, and it's a fantastic. It's a great summer read. I actually can't Uh, believe it's still in the top ten. I know it's been been there forever. it's been, it, I think it's been there for 100 years, hasn't it? It feels like it. <laughs> I've told you a million times before, don't exaggerate. Um, other books in the top 10 this week include V2, which is a, 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 a superb link um, by Robert Harris. He's a great um, storyteller, absolutely superb. And this is a story set against the backdrop of the of the second version of the flying bomb, the V two missile campaign. Oh, I've uh, I've read that, and it's it's fantastic. You've it sort of got, yeah, yeah, you've got two stories. You've got sort of uh, a story from the perspective of the German side, and also right. from the uh, from the English side. Right. Yeah. Um, exactly. Yes. In truth. And then the other one, the uh, the last one I've got is the is a, a new Linda Laplante, a great author. She has a new book which has hit um, the number ten. Um, spot straight away um with and it's called judas horse and it's following um her detective jack war who uses an informant to lure unsuspecting killers into his trap fantastic they're all great great books for our we're looking for some summer reading inspiration so most importantly i just want to say thank you all for listening and thanks also to mike burton for his reading and his poem to author paul oliveston Stobb for his book at a girls which is out now and other books we've been recommending today are mary portis rebuild how to thrive in the new kindness economy which is published by penguin uh, Hogarth Life in Progress by uh, Progress, I beg your pardon, by Jacqueline Riding, published by Profile Books. Robert Galbraith, Trouble Blood, is published by Sphere. Spitfire Kids by Alistair Cross, published by Headline. Her Heart for a Compass by Sarah Ferguson, published by Mills and Boone. Uh, Spitfire, uh, a history uh, legend by Mike Lepine, Sona Books. And Spitfire, a very British love story by John Nicholl, published by Simon and Schuster. And Spitfire Manual 1940 by Dilip um, Sakar, published by Amberley Publishing. So next week, we'll be chatting to author Jonathan Crane about the books that inspire him. You might have remembered we were chatting to him a couple of, um, a couple of weeks ago about his yes, latest indeed. book. So he's coming back on to talk about the books that inspire him. Super. And we look forward to you all joining us next Wednesday between 11 and 12 noon on River Radio. 
And if you're not able to join us live, then you can listen again. So you can do that directly from our website, which is river.radio. <laughs> is that it? <laughs> river.radio. You can listen to us directly from our website, website river.radio. And also, Turning Pages on River Radio is available as a podcast. So I'm Ooh. very, very excited about mm. that. So thank you all for listening, and we look forward to jo- you joining us next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Paperback Voice River Radio of the Thames Valley.